Once upon a time, there was a little Southern product, a beverage concocted by a Civil War veteran and sold at soda fountains. In Atlanta, Georgia, in 1886, we sold an average of nine drinks a day. By 1900, we're sold in every state of the U.S. That drink? A little soda called Coca-Cola. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, the southernness of Coca-Cola, how its birthplace of Atlanta, Georgia, shaped the soft drink and the company Coke became, and how it shaped Atlanta and the wider world beyond the South. You may think of Coca-Cola as a national product, an iconic American brand. But for Bart Elmore, it's one that speaks of home. I grew up, as I often say, I call it Coke country because that's what it is. You're surrounded by Coke in Atlanta, Georgia. Bart remembers when he was a teenager, leaving home to go to college in New England. I became like the biggest promoter of all things Atlanta and Georgia. I mean, the cowboy boots that I'm wearing right now, I got when I was in eighth grade. But I took them to school with me, you know? And like, to me, it was like, I'm from the South. And I think I projected all this stuff. I got like a massive Georgia belt buckle, which I'm still really embarrassed by actually. But I wanted to project this pride of the South. And I remember reminding people when I get up to New England, like, you know, they'd be like the South, oh, it's, you know, it's pastoral, it's all these things. And I would say, you know, Coke, what's the biggest brand in the world? You know, it started in my hometown. Not only did it start there, but it was and is ubiquitous in Atlanta. I drank so much Coke growing up. You know, it's unbelievable. Probably more Coke than water. In fact, just walking the streets of downtown, the influence of Coca-Cola is everywhere. And it's not just what residents are drinking. It's in the cityscape. Gravy intern Tyler Pratt and I spent some time wandering around gathering evidence of Coke's omnipresence. It helps if you know the names of some of Coke's longtime leaders, Asa Candler and Robert Woodruff. They're literally everywhere yeah. <laughs> around Atlanta. We're just walking down the street here on Edgewood, and here's the Robert W. Woodruff Volunteer Service Center. Is that the Candler Building? That one? I think so. Yeah, here it is, 127, the Candler Building. Regional headquarters for the Coca-Cola Bottling Company. We have a mural of Coca-Cola in our dining hall. You do? What, what, what school do you go to? I go here at Georgia State. It's a girl drinking Coca-Cola, branding Coca-Cola. We have the Coca-Cola machines. Let's see it, uh, Walgreens. Uh, right, on, right on top on the roof. The largest Coca-Cola sign in, uh, in the world, I think. Thank you, Atlanta, Coca-Cola's hometown for 130 years and counting. <laughs> so how did it get to be this way? How did Atlanta get so full of Coke influences? And what influence has Atlanta and being in the South had on Coke? We have to go back to the very beginning of the soft drink, or actually even further, to its prehistory. And to help us do that, we're turning back to Bart Elmore. That Atlanta-proud teenager with the Georgia belt buckle grew up to be an environmental historian and to write a book called Citizen Coke. Bart says it all begins with the story of a down-on-his-luck Civil War veteran named John Pemberton. John Pemberton is this pharmacist in Columbus, Georgia, and Poor guy. He's he's defending the city of Columbus, Georgia. He's a Confederate soldier. In uh, April of 1865, really at the end of the Civil War. So basically, this is the last gasp of the Confederate Army. 
uh, you know, he's, he's fighting and to the bitter end and he gets shot and slashed and wounded in this defense of Columbus, like slash with a saber is, is the account that I've, I've read, you know, and it's, he's hurt. He's down and out. Pemberton's in bad shape because of his injuries. He ends up addicted to morphine. And I think his story would have been very similar to a lot of other people in the South at that time dealing with war wounds and things. So here's a guy's like sick. He's, you know, also he's drugged up. So what's going to happen to this guy? Clearly, he's about to start one of the most successful companies in world history. I mean, it sounds like an absolute loser, right? Like, who's just going to, like, die in his basement and it's going to be a terrible story. But amazingly, like, he, he fights his way out of this. In 1870, Pemberton moves to Atlanta as an aspiring entrepreneur. He doesn't have much luck at first. His business is burned down, not once, but twice. He goes bankrupt. But Pemberton persists. And that's what a lot of people were doing in the Atlanta of this era. This is a place that's trying to rebuild, right? The South is very much financially in dire straits. We've seen an entire economy based on plantation slavery kind of upended. Socially, this is a dramatic change to society. It's a world in flux. But it's a world that also, financially, it's not a center of of capital accumulation. So we've got a place where... If you want to make a big business, you're going to have to be really creative about how you're going to come up with cash and how you're going to generate the resources you need to build a business. And so Pemberton gets creative by borrowing someone else's big idea and copying it. And the the drink he sees that he wants to copy is this drink called Vin Mariani, which is a Bordeaux wine that has coca leaves in it that would have contained the alkaloid and purified cocaine. Wine, with a tiny little bit of cocaine in it. It's this like hopped up alcoholic drink, right? And people loved it because why not? It's like, you know, it's got this like buzz and it's also got alcohol and it's cocaine wine. This Vin Mariani, cocaine wine, was created by a Corsican pharmacist as a patent medicine, basically like a brain tonic, in the 1860s. By the time Pemberton moves to Atlanta, the drink is a big hit all around the world. Queen Victoria in England wrote testimonials about this. Our president, Ulysses S. Grant, in the, you know, 1870s after the Civil War, he's dealing with his own, I like this stuff, it's great. I think the greatest example is that the Pope, you know, is drinking this and, you know, it's totally fine. You know, this idea that the coca leaf is this dangerous thing was not something that would have been around then. And to be clear, we're talking about a tiny amount of the alkaloid that's in cocaine. The effect was subtle. Pemberton notices the popularity of Vin Mariani and thinks, hmm. So he decides, well, why not try my hack at this? And, you know, not very original. Like, again, you're kind of, it's not that he's a desperate person, but you seem just kind of grasping at straws here. All right, let's try, let's call it Pemberton's wine of coca. And it sells. Bart says there are advertisements claiming he was selling hundreds of bottles a day. But, you know, this was the Gilded Age. Numbers tended to be inflated. But there was a problem. The problem was not the cocaine with this drink in Georgia. Weirdly, it was the alcohol. The city of Atlanta was pushing for a ban on the sale of alcohol around this time. Why was that? Prohibition, the 18th Amendment banning alcohol, wouldn't come for another couple decades. But in the Protestant South, temperance movements are taking off because there's this perception that alcohol is contributing to crime and vice and a kind of demoralization of the country. 
So before it swept to the U.S., a local temperance movement was taking hold in Georgia. In the case of Atlanta, this really shapes Coca-Cola because here's this guy with Vin Mariani, this Coca drink, ah, but alcohol is going to be banned. So I got to come up with a temperance version, a non-alcoholic version. And that's what happens in 1886. I mean, you can think of Coca-Cola, the replacing of the wine really with carbonated water. You're creating this kind of temperance, non-alcoholic version of this Coca drink. John Pemberton sold the first Coca-Cola at a soda fountain in Jacob's Pharmacy in what's now the center of downtown Atlanta on May 8th, 1886. They would have sold syrup to the soda fountains originally in, Coke, in Atlanta and then throughout the kind of the Southeast. And that syrup would have been mixed by soda fountain operators with water at the point of sale. What's important about that is that think about what Coke is. I mean, if you're thinking about volume, it's about 80% water. So you've just outsourced 80% of the product that you're selling. It's kind of a really smart strategy, again, out of necessity in a reconstruction era and Gilded Age South, where you've got to find ways to, to raise capital when you don't have a lot. Coming up. What happened to the coca part of Coca-Cola once the wine was removed? Plus, a visit to Coke headquarters that's ahead. There is the donor music. So now we've all stuffed ourselves with turkey, and it's time to think about holiday shopping. Don't despair. Lodge Manufacturing of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee has a curated catalog of gift ideas for you. For the mom or uncle who simmers your favorite Brunswick stew, or bakes the best sweet potato casserole, Lodgecraft's enamel-covered Dutch ovens and stoneware baking dishes. For the hunter who plans to spend the next few months in the woods, Lodge makes an assortment of cooking tables and camp ovens. For that in-law who has no idea how to even fry a pork chop, Lodge sells distinctive cookbooks. They really do have something for everyone on your list, including the SFA. Their gift to us? They financially support this podcast. For that and much more, we thank them. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy said hey. And now back to our story. Coca-Cola's headquarters are very on-brand. It's all glistening white hallways accented with red, decorated with a rotating collection of Coke-centric art. On the day I showed up, a team of workers was hanging a series of Andy Warhol originals. The first thing I usually make people do is buy a Coke. Ted Ryan is the archivist at Coca-Cola. He welcomes us into the basement space that houses the archives with a familiar ritual. This is the only place at Coke where you actually can buy a Coke. Everywhere else you press a button, it's free. But this is a 1958 uh, Cavalier 81 vending machine. It's one of the classic ones. And I just like the sound. So when you, uh, you put the dime in, Ted is a Coca-Cola evangelist. 
but I've got the best job in the world because every day I get to come into the office and talk about Coca-Cola. He really means that. I've never seen anyone get so jazzed about a treasure trove of Coke paraphernalia. And I gotta say, it was kind of infectious. But maybe that was just because of Ray Charles. A great campaign in the uh, 60s and 70s was things go better with Coke and then it's a real thing. But they gave the, just that slogan, things go better with Coke, to all these different artists and asked them to do the jingle in their own way. Uh, I kind of want to hear the Ray, Ray Charles one, man. The Ray Charles one is fantastic. When I come home to you in the evening After working hard all day You make everything so cozy for me in a sweet and gentle way There are syrup urns from back in the 19th century that aided soda jerks in mixing the original Coca-Cola syrup with carbonated water, Coke trays, radios, coolers, toys, trucks, lamps, you name it. There are ads, so many ads. I love that song. And there are lots of bottles. In 1915, we put out a creative brief for a bottle that you could recognize lying broken on the ground or by feeling the dark. And that's when the classic Coke bottle shape that you know was patented in 1915. The bottling of Coca-Cola is part of what helped it spread so effectively. This was after John Pemberton's time. He died before Coke got big. A pharmacist named Asa Candler took over the company in the 1890s. And he turned out to be a genius marketer. And it grew throughout the South quickly. So Memphis, uh, Birmingham, all the cities of the South uh, began selling Coca-Cola on fountain. Then they began to do an incentive program to get more salespeople to get the, the product to spread. In Atlanta, Georgia, in 1886, we sold an average of nine drinks a day. By 1900, we're selling almost a million gallons of syrup, and we're sold in every state of the U.S. At first, Asa Candler was hesitant to bottle Coca-Cola. One of the things that Candler did that other people in the industry didn't do was he, quality control was so important for him. It had to, every batch had to be identical, it had to be perfect, it had to taste the same. He sent out uh, mobile labs with people to go. They would take a sample of the syrup unannounced at a store and make sure it was actual uh, authentic Coca-Cola syrup and it was an up to standards. The system was this. Local bottlers were required to build their own facilities. Coke supplied the syrup and the branding, and the bottlers were responsible for the rest, including buying one of Coke's key ingredients, water. Remember, Coca-Cola is about 80% water. This was a moment when cities were just starting to invest in the infrastructure, pipes and such, for public water. The system worked. By the 19-teens, everyone, Coca-Cola and the bottlers, was making a profit. The beauty of Coca-Cola is that everybody who touches it makes money. You know, uh, the Coke, we sell the syrup to the bottler, the bottler puts it in a bottle and mix it with carbonated water, they mark it up a little bit more, we sell it to you for three cents and you sell it to everybody else for five cents. And as Coke got bigger, Atlanta and Georgia reaped the benefits. Coke's leaders like Asa Candler and later Robert Woodruff poured money into local universities and arts institutions. Remember all those things named after them on my Atlanta scavenger hunt? Philanthropy became a Coke tradition. When the cotton crop failed with the boll weevil, uh, Asa Candler bought the entire state's output of cotton uh, to just to put paychecks in people's 
bank accounts so just to keep the, the cotton industry moving. As Candler bailed out cotton farmers and bought the land to house Emory University, the South was exerting its own influence on coke. And that takes us back to Bart Elmore's story and the fate of the coca part of Coca-Cola. There's a decision that's made somewhere in the early 20th century, around 1903, to officially remove any trace of the alkaloid in the coca leaf cocaine that would be in purified cocaine, to remove cocaine essentially from the beverage. And what's interesting is this is being done at a time before there is any national law banning the sale of cocaine in the United States. It's legal to consume this and it's legal to sell it. So why did Asa Candler and other officials at Coca-Cola decide to take the cocaine out? Bart says it's all about moral attitudes in the post-Reconstruction South. And it has to do in many ways with Southern whites' fears that cocaine is contributing to black crime in the South. You know, there are all these black Americans who are just, if, if they're being fueled by various things to commit crimes. And cocaine was one of these things. Newspapers got in on the racist hype. They reported on a supposed rise in black cocaine use, with the New York Times writing that its evil effects are being seen in all the towns and cities of the southern states. The Atlanta Constitution blamed soft drinks containing cocaine for, quote, unconsciously cultivating the habit. Now, these racist fears weren't just in the South. The South's not the only place that has this monopoly on, you know, racism. But in this case, I think it really affected Candler's thoughts on this and, and the company's thoughts on this. And so they remove the, the cocaine. However, that does not mean they removed all elements of the coca leaf. But what's interesting is that even though they decide to decoconize the coca leaf, they still keep the coca leaf in Coca-Cola. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't know, is that, yes, this decision is made to like separate themselves from this cocaine past, so to speak. But Canlin really believes there's something like to this coca leaf flavor profile. And so around this time, Again, they partner with another company called the Maywood Chemical Company in New Jersey to import coca leaves from Peru and decoconize it, which is a ridiculous word, but like basically like take out the cocaine in the coca leaf and then that leftover essence is then sold to Coca-Cola and used in the drink. It's part of what's called merchandise number five, one of the secret ingredients in Coca-Cola. I put all of this to Ted Ryan and Coke. He says this is a question they get a lot. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody's asked me if Coke had cocaine. Because I always reply, how could he have sold it for a nickel? You know, it was a nickel drink. Uh, so no, there wasn't cocaine. By the time that they, the testing equipment was sufficient in the 1890s to prove there was no uh, cocaine, Asa Candler would, would uh, send it to the different state labs and then trumpet it with big ads saying, uh, here's uh, I proof from the State Department of Agriculture from South Carolina, there's no cocaine. Then I, I don't, you know, the myth was there and the urban legend was there. And I think that people want to, want to latch onto it. It sounds fun. 
So there's no co- there's no coca in Coca-Cola, basically? I don't know any of the ingredients in Coca-Cola because I've never seen the formula. Uh, oh, you've never, so like nobody, almost nobody, even people working at Coke have actually seen the formula. No, no, no. Very few people at the company know it. So you actually don't know if there's coca in Coca-Cola? I don't know any of the ingredients in Coca-Cola except what are printed on the label. And I, I get asked about it all the time, and, and uh, I always say it would make my job harder if I ever had seen the formula, uh, because now I just blanket deniability. The decoconized coca leaf extract has been a big part of Bart Elmore's investigative research into Coca-Cola, though. He even traveled to Peru, and he says this is another area in which Coke connects us with a global South. Our agricultural footprint is the American South extends beyond our borders, right? And in the case of coca, this is obvious, right? That we're going to have this effect on agricultural systems in Peru as a result of this relationship that Coca-Cola has with, with the coqueiros. Here's how Bart says it works. The leaves are imported from Peru by a separate chemical company, not Coca-Cola itself. It was the Maywood Chemical Company, now named the Steppen Chemical Company. They import the leaves, they decoconize the leaves. And then the question is always like, uh, so like, where's the cocaine go, right? Some of it is destroyed. Some of it goes to legitimate medical uses as a stimulant. It's all sanctioned by the federal government. And that's what's so interesting. The federal government basically knows this is going on. And Coke gets these, like, kind of what's called the Coca-Cola joker. In the early 20th century, the federal government starts banning coca leaves and cocaine. The Coca-Cola joker, as it's nicknamed, was a special exemption included in that counter-narcotics legislation. In those laws, it says, but decoconized coca leaf extract is okay. And of course, there's some people that are like, decoconized coca, like what? You know, but it's totally in there because Coke, you know, lobbies for this and pushes for it. And there's this relationship between government and Coke that's really strong. In fact, Bart says the laws are basically written so that Coke has a monopoly. Or in economics, we call it a monopsony, the single buyer access to one ingredient. So not not monopoly production, but monopsony, having just being the only buyer that can access it. So Coke has a monopsony over coca leaves. They can set their own price. That's what ticks off coqueiros, coca farmers, that Coke can get this, right? And they can bring it in the United States. But if I brought that same bag of leaves as a tourist across the border and they found me with it, I'd be arrested. I'd be thrown in jail as a United States citizen, but they can have it. Bart says there would be an agricultural revolution in Peru if these farmers could legally sell coca leaves to anyone else beyond Coke. But international law does not allow that. For example, in the United Nations Single Convention of 1961, you see this, like, Coke is there. Basically saying, yeah, yeah, we want to prohibit the sale of coca. This is a dangerous thing. You don't want to get that coca out there and that cocaine and all that. But let's be clear, like, that decoconized coca leaf, like, let's make sure that still gets to the U.S. There's even a ban on the indigenous practice of chewing coca leaves. They have all sorts of traditional uses, Bart says, that have now been villainized. When you have a cup of coffee in the morning, you're getting affected way more than you're going to probably be affected if you have a little coca tea. And yet, um, the way that this history has played out, um, it's something that's benefited coke immensely in so many ways, this, this unique ingredient that they have. But it's not something that's benefited the coqueiros. This is the bigger takeaway Bart thinks we need to have at this point that what started as a little drink sold at soda fountains in Atlanta now connects the South with a wider world, 
of coca leaf farmers, of international bottlers, and more. So I think when we think about Southern agricultural environmental history, like there are brethren in this story. There is very much a part of what we should be talking about when we think about global effects of Southern firms and Southern agriculture. Um, and just another South, right? That's, that's part of a, a global network. You can find a link to Bart Elmore's book, Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism, in which he traces the story of every ingredient in Coke, from the corn syrup to the caffeine. That's on our website, southernfoodways.org. Also up there are a bunch of photos from our trip to the archives at Coca-Cola's headquarters. You can see the famous Coca-Cola script written in many different alphabets and languages from Arabic to Thai. And there are a couple of photos from our Atlanta Coke scavenger hunt, too. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Weenland, and Lache Swing. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Our donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and to our intern, Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... The Southern Foodways Alliance thanks you for listening to our Gravy podcast. We ask you now, though, to go deeper. We invite you to join us at the table as an SFA member in the new year. SFA members receive a subscription to the print version of Gravy, our quarterly journal, as well as a membership sticker and a card with members-only specials and discounts. Most importantly, members support this organization's work, oral histories, films, and publishing projects, just to name a few. To become a member today, please sign up online at southernfoodways.org. Or you can purchase a gift membership just in time for the holidays. So I'll be on a break for the next couple of episodes. Sarah Reynolds will be taking the host's mic while I'm gone. Next time on Gravy, fermented vegetables in Middle Tennessee. When I was young, a young girl, my mother, she made crowd. And when she'd get that churn crowd done, she'd take it out and can it. Two fermenters share their ways of putting up food and how it keeps them going. It's a story of two pickles. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>